my, my industry, uh, composite uh, um, materials and, and engineering, is a dark art. You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. We are absolutely the guys in the shadows, and we have to be, because the brand, the brand, you know, we have a saying in our, in our company, the brand is everything. We must protect the brand. We're paid by the brands to do the work that they either can't do themselves or don't want to do themselves or don't have the resources to do. Hello, it's uh, Tom here. I'm, um, well, you found me in the kitchen because a nice chap called Lee has just been around the house and he's fixed my coffee machine. Um, my coffee machine's not been working for like two weeks. And so, um, yeah, I'm going to treat myself to a very much after 11 cappuccino, actually. Not a cappuccino, it's going to be a, a flat white. And welcome to Service Course. Enough about my coffee machine. Um, this is a, an episode without... Lizzie this month that's because Lizzie is over in the States at a training camp and you know well I miss Lizzie but I'm absolutely delighted that she is well back really she's she's back training she's living the life of a pro cyclist so that's great news Uh, Lizzie will be back next month and also I think we'll hear from Lizzie over Christmas if our planned trip to not Watford comes about and you can hear about that in a friends of the podcast special to come hopefully this month's episode well it's a chat with a a chap called Paul Farrell now Paul has been in the bike industry for about 25 years Uh, before that well he'll tell you all about it he was in the um the oil business and um he's got a fascinating story. He's a fascinating character. He is one of these guys, as he just says, um, who lurks in the shadows of cycling. He operates and owns a number of factories out in the Far East, producing carbon products. He designs he designs carbon products for a lot of the major brands, which he'll also tell you about. But he also he's got a very interesting take on the cycling industry the problems within the cycling industry and the things that sort of hold back progress in the cycling industry i actually met paul through a friend of mine at the graphene institute and you all know how much i'm interested in graphene and the potential for new materials to to revolutionize cycling and paul himself you know he has well he has more patents on cycling products than i've had hot dinners and um again he's he does get himself quite frustrated as he as he'll speak to in this interview with um, the slow rate of of progress in the cycling industry and what is often marketed as progress in the cycling industry anyway listen i'll play the tape listen to paul and um i'll join you at the end with a flat white. I got an honours degree in maths and physics from Lancaster University uh, and with a with a, a major in uh, a geophysics. And I graduated in 1977, which were the dark ages as far as England was concerned. It was the it was the era of the um, the minor strikes, blackouts, riots. I was very fortunate enough to be headhunted by a division of the world's leading. Um, oil exploration company, Schlumberger. 
or Schlumberger, depending on which where you come from. And I joined them immediately out of university and started traveling the world in the oil business. So for me, it was a great way of earning a lot of money and being paid to travel around the world. And um, somebody asked me recently how many countries I've been to. And I said, well, it's, it's well over 100, but I've actually technically lived in 55. I spent about 15 years in the oil industry and um, ended up in Africa, uh, West Africa prominently, where I um, I got sick, I got malaria, um, had some very interesting experiences there. Uh, ended up back in England, and they said to me um, one day, um, "Congratulations, you're being you're being posted to the best um, best new position where you'll be a, an area manager." I said, "Well, where's that?" And they said, "You're going to Australia." And I said, "No, I'm not." Uh, you know, I was a I was a public school boy. Why why on earth would I want to go to that penal colony? And um, <laughs> I vehemently I vehemently <laughs> objected. <laughs> But they sent me anyway, and I literally, uh, this was in 19, in the early 80s, I, I flew into, um, I believe, Adelaide Airport, looking out the window, expecting to see the main terminal to be a tin, corrugated tin shed with tumbleweeds and the, the, the great, you know, the great outback of Australia sort of sands blowing across the runway. And of course, it isn't like that at all. It's it's paradise on earth. And so I ended up living there. I stayed there. Um with Schlumberger for a number of years, uh, started my own exploration company. Um, was very fortunate that uh, made quite a lot of money and um, ended up semi-retiring in my sort of mid mid thirties. Are you in that role? Are you kind of like I imagine you was almost like a sort of a prospector, a, fr- a sort of treasure hunter in that way. Is is it, is there is there similarities? Well, the, the oil business, anybody that's been in it understands it, it is it is not only a highly lucrative uh, industry to be in, but it's it, it you're, you're paid because of the of the risk. I mean, it's got incredibly high risk. I've had at least 12 friends of mine die in that in various operations. I was involved in the world's worst ever hovercraft uh, disaster where I lost about eight friends blown up in the in the Gulf uh, just off just off um, Abu Dhabi when I was young. I was still only in my early 20s. And that's a horrible thing to happen to anybody. And then I spent many years working up in um, in um, New Guinea, the, the highlands of New Guinea, where I'd often be the only white guy that anybody under the age of 20 had ever seen. They thought I was a walking ghost. And we lost people there. Um, we were in village disputes where we had, uh, you know, bows and arrows fired at us and all sorts of things. So there is a degree of it. But when you're young and stupid, I mean, it, it's all exciting. And, and the money plays a big part. And uh, I was still single. And... Um, it was an adventure. It was just a huge roller coaster. When I got out of the oil industry, the reason was I got, I got married to an Australian woman and we started to plan a family. And I'd seen over the years in the oil patch, every time I'd flown back from wherever I was, there would be wives and children standing at the airport with photographs of their fathers because the children hadn't seen their father, fathers for maybe six months or three months and couldn't um, couldn't recognise them. And I thought that was very sad, and I didn't want to miss the um, uh, I didn't want to miss the uh, you know the the lifestyle that a family uh, really needs. Especially, uh, I ended up having two two daughters, both of whom are you know grown up now. I was introduced to cycling, and I joined a uh, the Gold Coast. For those of those of you listeners that know it, um, the climate and the uh, terrain lend themselves incredibly well to cycling. A lot of the pros uh, of the likes of Robbie McEwen, Brett Lancaster, and and, and a number of others um, all lived there when they were off season from the um, European um, you know racing calendar. So you know I was in the same 
you know, this sort of club atmosphere. And we had several hundred members. And, um, you know, the weather was always sunny and it used to get me out of bed at five o'clock. So I was, um, I spent the next 20 years club riding, racing on Sunday afternoons and crit riding every Sunday morning and thoroughly enjoying it. But I will, I will emphasize the fact that I wasn't very good. I was, I was much more a businessman. What was your, um, what was your first sort of um, job in cycling then? What was the first business in cycling? Well, it all started because my wife, ex-wife and I were up in Guangzhou at the world's largest um, consumer trade show. Um, we had another business and um, completely unrelated to cycles. Uh, we have a factory in the, in the Philippines making um, giftware. And uh, I was getting bored, increasingly bored. So I picked up a magazine, which happened to be the um, the um, uh, Taiwan Bicycle Industry uh, magazine, which is the kind of the Bible. And I just flicked through it. I was sitting in a coffee shop and I saw all these, this was the late 90s. So composite carbon composites were still really just coming in. Composite wheels were very expensive and hadn't been commercialized properly at the time. But I saw all these lovely photographs of, of, of things, carbon handlebars, carbon wheels, carbon frames, forks, seat posts. So um, I ripped all the pages out, went back to Australia, promptly rang the companies and um, at that time, speaking no Mandarin, I um, I managed to get uh, make contact with um, about a dozen different manufacturers in Taiwan, where I'd never been. These manufacturers are they just um, factories that are sort of out? They're outsourced. The factories that the, the companies outsource their work to the bike brands. Yes, exactly, exactly. This was still the fledgling composite. I mean, the bike. The, these companies, many of them, had just had, were just experimenting with carbon composite at the moment because at that stage I, I would turn up for example at a race in the late 90s and i'd be one of only two or three people who had a carbon bike and people would just come up and lift it up and they go oh wow this guy must be really good i mean i wasn't i just had the lightest bike shoot uh, shoot that out of the cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack please that's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, and this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode of Service Course is sponsored by Stitch Fix. Now, it's Christmas party season now, isn't it? Well underway, just a couple of weeks to go until the big day, so perhaps you've been invited to some festive parties by family or friends or colleagues, and you want to dress to impress and look your best, but you don't want to go and battle all of the Christmas shoppers in the high street, elbow to elbow at the clothing rails, looking for your size. It's a real faff at the best of times. Uh, Clothes shopping, not really something I relish, especially not at this time of year. So Stitch Fix has been a real boon for me because you get five items delivered to your door, selected by your Stitch Fix stylist according to your taste, your size and your preferred price range. There's a fantastic range of different brands, something for everyone really. It's a bit like going into a department store when you see what the Stitch Fix stylist has come up with and you can try everything on in the comfort of your own home. You're not in a cramped changing room in a store. You can get in front of the full length mirror and decide which of the items you want to keep and send back any that you don't want very easily. Now, normally there's a £10 styling fee each time you order, but our friends at Stitch Fix have a very special offer for Cycling Podcast listeners. Right now, the styling charge for your first order will be waived, giving you the opportunity to try the actual selection service completely free. You can schedule a delivery from Stitch Fix anytime and there's no subscription required. So you can choose when you want to refresh your wardrobe and see what the stylist comes up with. Uh, Delivery and returns are easy and free. 
So Stitch Fix really does the hard work for you. And when that box arrives, it's a little bit like Christmas morning because you never quite know what you're going to get. Go to stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling and get started with Stitch Fix today. You'll receive your first fix styled and delivered absolutely free and you'll get an additional 20% off when you keep all of the five items in your Stitch Fix box. So that's stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling. You've got nothing to lose. So we're well, going back to um, your sort of first venture then into cycling. So you contacted the companies who are, who are you know, producing um carbon products uh how did that did was that frustrating was that did that sort of basically say do you know what i'm gonna to have to just buy a factory <laughs> you know, to uh, it. it ended up it ended up doing that but in the early days no it was actually i mean again it was another adventure it was another exciting adventure i'll summarize so I, I ring up about a dozen factories try and get hold of somebody who can speak english which it even then wasn't that easy taiwan now has what's called hsr it's a high-speed rail Taiwan, for those who don't know the island, it's basically a long, narrow island with a western coastline where everybody, 22 million people live, a very high mountain range, central mountain range, which is basically uninhabitable because it's too high and mountainous, and then a very few people live over on the Pacific um, East Coast. So everybody lives down on the west, and there's basically four major cities. Starts in tai- Taipei, in the, the capital in the north. Next biggest city is Taichung, where I normally live, um, which is the capital of the bicycle industry. Within a 10-kilometre 10, 10 radius of there, I would estimate that probably, I don't know, 40 50% of the world bicycle factories exist, or at least one of their factories do, and our headquarters do. So everybody, I mean, my next-door neighbours are SRAM, DT Swiss. So you get so once you've made contact then with these uh, factories, what is it that you're... Um thinking about having built i mean do you just see an opportunity to produce frames more you know a greater quantity a lower cost was that what it is it was a purely initially what can i go to taiwan and stick on my bike that makes me look like an even bigger idiot so that was the thinking there was nothing else really beyond it i just fancied going to taiwan i'd heard of the place never been there um i'd been to china mainland china multiple times and it was a very exciting, if not difficult, place to be. I always remember my first trip to China in the late 80s, where I was definitely being followed around. I was staying at the um, Army Hotel in Guangzhou. It was a difficult place to be, but it was so exciting that you could you could literally taste the atmosphere of development and what it could be if it was allowed to flourish, which it did for many years, and which is why I ended up moving there in, in 2000. So the 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 initial idea was purely let's go to Taiwan and see. So I went and I I visited about twelve factories. Came back with, I think three or four taxi loads of samples, stuck them all on my bike. The carbon wheels that they had sold me or given me weren't. I did a crit, and they exploded. It was an aluminium rim with a plastic cover on it. And it just absolutely disintegrated in the middle of a crit. It's a very similar story to, from what I understand, of how Mike Sinyard and Specialized. You know, he went to Taiwan, bought some stuff, went back to, to you know, sold it. I did the same out of my garage to friends in in the in the club. Um, they wanted more. I went back. I got more. They came back. I sold that, and then eventually, um, uh, for rather 
uh, um, rather unusual uh, reasons, um, I was convinced to start a brand. Uh, I didn't really want a brand because I'm not a marketing guy by any means, and I'd, I'd really never done it um, before. So I wasn't really aware of how to do a brand, but my my ex-father-in-law convinced me that this would be a great idea and how, how to make more money. So I um, I started the um, Leggera brand, which is Italian. My mother's Italian, and it means light. I have a great affinity for uh, Italian design, whether it's in my blood or not, but I do design for a number of Italian brands. So I wanted the Leggera brand to have as much genuine Italian componentry on as possible. So the very first bike I did, I ever took to a show, was an open model um, Taiwanese brand uh, uh, carbon uh, frame and fork. But then I had um, uh, Modelo, which doesn't exist as a brand anymore, but it's a famous Italian handlebar and brake, actually brakes. It started off with the, with brakes and brake levers. I, w I became the Australian distributor for Modelo. I had the Veloflex tyres, the group set, the entire Gruppo was Campagnolo. Um, I spec'd every single thing on that bike, Italian, genuine Italian, I could, and I won the best bike of show. First ever was in Melbourne, I think, in 2001, and I, was, I won best. And all the majors were there, and they and they were running around going, who the hell is this Leggera? <laughs> just won the best bike. And it was just a composite of... of um, you know, uh, uh, of of different brands, and you know, I had a Sally Italia saddle, and a, I can't remember the post and stuff. But it was Italian as I could make it without, but it was airbrushed. I had it all airbrushed, and that's how we started. We got a we got a good name in the in the in the magazines. I started advertising, but I wanted to do non conventional advertising. I I really dislike the oh. Um, Pro Tour rider, blah, 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 rides this. We did we did unconventional marketing and it struck a particular nerve. I, I discovered early on that it was it was, you know, niche marketing was 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 where it had at. And I and I created this niche because our bikes were actually fully custom built. We were building them, we were assembling them in on the Gold Coast to custom order. So you could order the paint, you could order all the group set, the wheels, everything you wanted. You built you you got the bike you wanted rather than the one that was in the store that somebody wanted to sell you. So we had to create um, a whole new method to sell, and this is what we did in the early two thousands, and it, it actually worked. So did you repeat that trick elsewhere in the world, or was it did you, did you sort of stay as a an Australian sort of thing? It grew. The brand grew up until two thousand seven internationally. Uh, by two thousand seven, we were selling in the UK, um, South Africa. I think a couple of countries in Asia, and it was on a on a huge upward trajectory. Unfortunately, um, I won't go into a lot of detail, but I got embezzled um, by a couple of so-called investors who weren't they were crooks. Um, one of which um, uh, ended up in, I believe, ended up in prison. Um, I lost the company because I stupidly see up until then I'd I'd spent all my own money. And um, rather stupidly, at a dinner party one evening, I ran into a couple of um, so-called wealthy investors, and they weren't. Uh, they were crooks, and uh, they put money into the company. I, I ended up, you, you, you referred earlier to um, what were the problems of doing the way I was doing it. The biggest problem was, in those days, and it still is to a certain extent, if you're not 
where the manufacturing happens. You are at the mercy of the manufacturer. Back then, what was happening, we would order, because our quantities were still quite small, but I knew the factories very, very well, and they wanted to expand their international sales. So they were quite happy working with this small Australian brand, which clearly was growing quite strongly. And I was giving them feedback about design because the 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 designs we were buying were still at that stage open mold, but we, we wanted to improve them. So I basically um, moved to China um, in 2000 and um, literally lived in a carbon factory um, for the next 15 years. I'm not going to name the, the name of the, the factory because it actually doesn't exist anymore. Um, it got into financial trouble after my wife and I left. It was totally mismanaged and it's it's changed its name and it's downsized. So when we went there, it was a, it was a new company, but it had a very interesting um, a curing, what's known as a you know, curing technology. I'd seen this company in 2005 at a show in China. I thought their technology was very interesting, but at the time it was a, it was kind of a university project. And the the owner of the Chinese factory that I was that I was living in and studying at and learning my craft said to me, "Oh, that's just a university project. That'll never happen." But I saw that it was possible to have this, and it was a better way of making a frame. It always stuck with me. That era was was the era of the super light carbon frame. All the big brands were all trying to break the initially eight fifty gram, and then eight hundred, and then it got down to seven fifty. And it kind of stopped about there because you're using um, conventional sporting grade composite, carbon composite, which is what 95% of all carbon bikes are made of. I decided to uh, target a very well-known Italian brand, a historic Italian brand, which I'd always um, admired and wanted one, De Rosa. So I decided that the best way to do this was to make an ultralight frame from the ground up, which I designed, did the engineering on, and we got it down to 700 and something. It wasn't ultralight, but it was it was under 800 grand. Went to Eurobike show with it, tried to get onto the Europe. Euro, in those days, Eurobike was still in Friedrichshafen, and De Rosa had the number one stand in Hall A1. And there they were standing, the two brothers in their Armani suits and looking, the, the, the stand always looked absolutely resplendent. It was the the pinnacle of bike Italian culture. And they wouldn't see us. They We didn't have an appointment. They wouldn't see us. So me being the kind of person I am, I said, right, after the show, we're driving from here to Milan with this bike. We drove down to Milan overnight and we turn up at the doorstep of the De Rosa family uh, factory at about seven o'clock in the morning. I've got the frame in my hand. I walk up to the door, knock on the door, and the door opens. And what I perceive to be the night watchman slightly opens the door. And I said, excuse me, um, is Mr. De Rosa here, please? And he said, no, 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 he's not here. So I said, oh, I have a, I have a gift. Can I leave it, please? And he said, oh, I'm not sure. What, 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 what is it? And I said, I've, I have a frame here for Mr. Cristiano de Rosa. Can you please give it to him when he comes back from the show? Okay, that was it. Six months later, I get an email from, from de Rosa saying, are you the guy that's designed this bike, makes this bike? We've been testing it for six months. It's wonderful. When can you come and see us? 
and I ended up the next eight years. Um, I did all the De Rosa bikes for them, and that was um, and the night watchman was Hugo De Rosa. Shoot, shoot that arrière du peloton, cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, and this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode of Service Course is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. Now, whether you're running a small, medium or large business, every time you hire somebody for that organisation, it can feel quite high stakes because you want to be 100% certain that you've got access to the best qualified candidates out there. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right people quickly and for free. It's really easy to create a free job ad on LinkedIn Jobs. You can write the description of what you're looking for and what your organization's like and crucially what the role requires. And then add the job and the purple hashtag hiring frame to your own LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. Then there are some simple tools like screening questions, which make it really easy to focus on the candidates who've got just the right skills and experience. So you can sort out your top general classification of contenders and perhaps interview the top six on GC and see which of them is going to be the yellow jersey for your organisation. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs as number one in delivering quality candidates against some of its other competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates that you want to talk to more quickly. Post your job ad for free at linkedin.com slash cycle. That's linkedin.com slash cycle. Post your job ad for free and award your metaphorical yellow jersey to the winning candidate. Terms and conditions apply. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thanks as ever to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast through 2022 and all that we have done here. Now it is the season for giving, I guess it's Christmas. And for the cyclists in your life, why not give them a bundle of Science in Sport products? I know that I would very much appreciate that. And if you want to get 25% off while doing so, you can go to scienceinsport.com, enter the offer code SISCP25, and you get 25% off. That's SISCP25. Uh, the original owner and founder of Zip is a chap called Andy Ording. When he sold the business to SRAM, he got out. He's now an entrepreneur and, um, and a benefactor in America. Really good guy. When we knew each other, he once said to me, Paul, you know, wind, wind tunnel testing is the biggest farce. You can prove anything in a wind tunnel because really only a half a dozen people in the world know anything about it. And the ones that do are all high-velocity wind tunnel guys. Um, wheels wheels don't work in high-velocity wind tunnels. <laughs> it's not something you just turn the dial down and go, slow-velocity wind tunnel, high-speed-velocity wind tunnel. It's not that simple. Um, so, you know... Just treat any any website that says, you know, tested and verified in a wind tunnel because it's a total rubbish normally. There's only a couple of places you can get it done. Any normal wind tunnel is, is, is designed as a, whether it be an open or closed wind tunnel, is designed primarily to be a high-speed wind tunnel. has absolutely no bearing on low-velocity fluid dynamics whatsoever, and they can't measure the, um, the minute grand balances that, that need to be done. And I've seen some awful photos on websites putting putting wheels in wind tunnels at 90 degrees to the to the to the uh, airflow. 
I mean, do do we do we drive do we ride bicycles sideways? No, we don't. So what what possible purposes are that? Just to prove what the ninety degree side load drag would be, which is a, which is of no importance to anyone. We don't ride bicycles in wind tunnels. Um, so it it is it has been grossly misused as a way to influence and mislead the general public. I think where I'd like to go next, if I can, Paul, is we've we've sort of um we've given the cycling industry a good kick in and I'm totally on board with uh, everything you're saying. I want to know um where if you could redesign the cycling industry and it's I guess it's the sort of thing you you try and do where should it be going do we need to just take the limits off progress is that what we need to do well yes but it's very simple to do if you look at what's happening over especially the last couple of years during covid the cycling industry has changed completely and utterly forever. Um, you, 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 your listeners may be aware that many of the larger companies, the largest one recently being the um, the buyout by KKR, the world's biggest venture capital company based out of New York, or Assel Group in Holland. The reason venture capital companies buy up anything is to hold them for a few years, see if they can bring in economies of scale, slash overhead, and then resell them. Are they doing it for the benefit of cycling? Come on. So you've got this, um, you've got the big end of the financial uh, town coming in. So all bicycle brands, and I do mean all, are now basically run by accountants. Now, I can say this with, a, with an absolute degree of confidence because don't forget, I sit, or I go to meetings or people come to me meetings and they say, Paul, okay, so we're here, you've got this new, method new material that can do xyz and it's really 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 good and you, and you and you show them the data and you give them samples and they come back in six months and the engineers usually love it they go, oh this is great this is fantastic and then you get the letter from the um, purchasing department they do not perceive in dollar value the innovation that you're trying to achieve Brand Y and Brand Z doesn't have it. Why do we need it? So we don't want it. And we don't just tell you it's because of price. We'll tell you it don't, we, we just don't think it really works. And I've been through this so many times. It's really disappointing because you can imagine um, to develop a new process, uh, you know, manufacturing technique, a new material, bring it online, test it, you know, Ad nauseum, ad nauseum, have it out in the field for a year, two years, under test riders. It takes a lot of money, it's a lot of time, and, and it becomes your baby. And to be rejected by a bunch of accountants hiding behind R&D guys, if they even have R&D guys, who are basically being told, look, what it, whatever you do, just say it's not worth it because – we're not sticking our neck out. I could give you so many concrete examples of this happening, but I won't because then I'll have to start mentioning brands. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a big disincentive. There are a few exceptions that still have the pride and the dignity and the love of cycling, the true love of cycling, to say we can we can progress the industry, not at a snail's place that makes dinosaurs look like, you know, Usain Bolt, because – the public aren't aware of the of the significant changes in in um, technology that that are available and are becoming available. 
And if it's not for people like us, I guess me talking about this now, they will never become aware of them, not in their lifetimes. And I'm, you know, I've probably only another five, maybe 10 years in this industry left. And that before I pass it on to um, the rest of my team. So, um, you know, we are actively involved in this on a daily basis, developing a whole range of product um, that may, if it was left to the big, the, the big end of town, the guys who control the money will never see the light of day. And it's very unfortunate. Well, I've got my Stacey Schneider mug and I can tell you that that is hands down the best coffee I've had in at least three weeks. God, something about absence or abstinence in my case, not having coffee. Wow, fantastic. Um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Paul. We actually, um, we recorded that over two separate sessions and I really want to do a, a third because there's a lot about the future of cycling and some of the patents, some of the products that Paul is hoping to produce and some of his sort of more radical ideas that I would love to get into. You guys know that I love that future gazing kind of stuff, but that will have to wait for another time. Um, all I can say now is, well, I hope you all have a great Christmas and um, well, you might hear from me before Christmas, likely it'll be just after with this uh, Friends special, so keep your ear out for that. And um, we, me and Lizzie, will be back in the new year. So, um, yeah, have a great Christmas. Thank you for listening this year. It's been, well, I should probably reflect on it really, shouldn't I, actually? Hadn't thought about it until I started saying that. It's been a, it's been a year. It's been a terrible year, really, hasn't it? Um, just makes me think of uh, of Rich and um, yeah. Well, listen, thank you for just being there for all of us throughout this year. It has meant the world to us, and I particularly doing the Tour de Cost series with Lionel recently. Um, the warmth uh, with which you received that series and um, some of the messages that we had just it, it's it's been wonderful. You know, you have each and every one of you has made a difference to my life, to, to our lives. And um, yeah, so here's to, uh, here's to 2023 and uh, thanks for listening. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.